Hi all, it's Nathan here coming to you with Chapel Bell Curve's first ever informative cold open. Just wanna give you a heads up that in the episode you're about to hear, there are a couple of small audio issues that were impossible for us to take out in the editing process. So we apologize in advance and we hope that you'll bear with us through what I think is actually a really good episode featuring both me, less importantly, and Mr. Ross Rutledge of R2 Sports Metrics. So. Without further ado, we will let the Redcoats bring us in and go dogs. This is Chapel Belker. I'm Nathan. I'm Ross. Ah, another challenger. Two weeks or two episodes in a row, we are coming to you with a new guest host. Well, he's not new, not new to the program. We've had him on before, Ross Rutledge of R2 Sports Metrics, I believe, is his website, also known as DogQuant on Twitter, one of the preeminent dog geniuses at over <laughs> on the worst app on the in the world. Um, so Justin is not going to be here with us tonight. He's got caught up because of the short week with a bunch of work stuff. So it's just going to be me and Ross. And then at some point, Ross is going to go and you'll just have to listen to me doing what I assume will be basically unintelligible ASMR. So we're here to review Samford. So this is going to be a quick one. We're going to get through the actual game portion of this pretty quickly. If you haven't heard, if this is your first episode, this is your first comic book with us, uh, Basically, we'll do this in two points. We'll do the qualitative preview where I'll just talk about the history of Samford and stuff that I find interesting pretty quickly. And then we'll get into some quantitative stuff where we talk about some stats with Ross and maybe talk about some of the you know, things that we're looking for, what we think is going to happen. And then we will get into everyone's favorite segment, which is Ask CBC. We've solicited some questions from our Discord and our patrons and a couple from Twitter. So let's get down to it. Mr. Rutledge, are you ready? Yeah, dude. Yeah, pull the trigger. Let's go. All right. So before we start, I always want to just remind remind people, if you want to hear this live, which I think at least one person is listening to this us do this live, even on Samford, the Samford preview, which is, you know, Yeoman's work from Ryan. <laughs> uh, if you want to hear this live and you want to get access to a really cool community, you can find us over on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash chapel bell curve. If you, I don't know, I think we, if you like what we do, we think that you would like the community that we have. It's a bunch of weird people doing weird stuff. And I mean that in the best possible way. So Samford preview, qualitative review. There's really not a lot to talk about with the Samford game. Samford is a SOCON team. And from what I've been able to gather, they're not even necessarily a very good FCS team. This is not <laughs> North Dakota. The word Dakota does not appear on this team's name. So they, I have less concern about them. So let's see. I'm going to give you the brief history of Stanford. I'm going to do it as quickly as I can because there are a couple of interesting things. They're in Birmingham. I think they're in Homewood, which is right outside of Birmingham. Gorgeous campus. Gives me big Barry vibes if you've ever been to Barry. Maybe not as bougie as Barry, but similar sort of like it's a private Christian school. It was founded by Matt uh, Baptist. Interestingly to me, it was founded in Marion, which is a place that I go to hunt a lot. And it's south, it was south of Selma. And it actually burnt down during the Civil War, the whole, the whole university, which was at that time called Howard College. But it only had one building which burnt down, and that was pretty much enough to move it to Birmingham. It has some interesting segregation history, actually. In the 50s and 60s, there was actually a student movement to at least have bigger acceptance of non-white people on campus. They uh, There was kind of a big kerfuffle in the 
I think the 60s because they invited a bunch of the the officers of the school, like the student government invited the student government of Miles College, which is a HBCU in Birmingham or was at the time over for a concert and then it, they got banned. And so it's, it's interesting. We have sort of these stereotypes of private Southern Christian colleges as being sort of recidivist when it comes to political issues, but it doesn't appear that in Safer's case that that was always the case. Hmm. Another thing that's kind of interesting is that because they were a private college, they actually, and this is, that was a good thing. This is a bad thing. They actually didn't desegregate at the same time as like the rest of American colleges. They turned down student loan programs so that they could stay segregated until 1967, which, and then they processed their first African-American student and kind of went on from there. They finally have a memorial to all of the students and enslaved people on campus that opened in 2020. So that's the brief history of Stanford. They actually have a really good music school. Little known fact about them. Not little known, but it is true. One of their oldest schools, the School of Music, is pretty good. Cortland Finnegan went there, which is weird. When I think about Cortland Finnegan as, as, as an NFL player, uh, that's not my first thought. Is like small private college, Christian college in Alabama. Uh, also, Bobby Bowden is probably their most famous alumni. Uh, and they're called the Bulldogs, which is nice. They have a very cute uh, bulldog that's like has big brown ears. His name's Baxley or Buxley. Buxley is an excellent name for a bulldog. Um, I like that their bulldog, much like the Mississippi State bulldog, looks like we'll say a tad less, a tad more genetically diverse than ours. A little, probably a little healthier, a little stronger yeah. in the chest than the Agaline is right now. <laughs> but that's you know that's about all I got. There's no Winsipedia for this because they don't track Sanford because they're a low tier F- FCS team. We've only played at Sanford once before. It was in 2017. We beat them 42 to 10. And we're going to beat them uh, with a similar or I would say even bigger score than that this time through. Yeah, way bigger. Okay, but I, I have questions. Okay, so back up. Because you're, you're touching on, on things that are, that are near and dear to my heart. I, I wasn't anticipating this. So Sanford, it sounds like the, the students in the 60s were yeah. um, pro-desegregation, but then the university itself... Until until when now? Until 1967. 19, so two years behind. Okay. Yeah. Well, because I know that one of the ways that desegregation happened was similar to the way they changed the drinking age, where a lot of federal funds were tied to desegregation. Where So they actually turned down a public loan NDEA student loan program in 65 and 66 because because they would have to affirm desegregation to do it. But eventually they ended up desegregating basically because their school of law fixed uh, their school of law would have lost its accreditation. And so they desegregated in 67. That that is a fascinating history. So it, it sounds like the the students of Sanford in the 60s were pretty uh progressive in in terms of 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 reducing what segregation. You would expect. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but 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 I guess the administration. I I do think it's a Baptist school, and there is a history in the Southern United States of more progressive Protestant preachers. It's not one. It's it's pretty rare. It's not one that's that's seldom told. But just as many, not just as many, but there was a significant number of white Protestant preachers who were progressive enough to be involved in the civil rights movement. I mean, yeah. significant in the sense that there were like twenty or thirty of them. But still, like that. That is a tradition. The like jack leg preacher is a tradition in the South. Yeah, I I, I think that's right, and I think in in terms of the progressive, at least on race, 
trends in the United States, uh, pre-slavery and, and even in the antebellum period, were predominantly driven by uh, Protestant religion, and 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 particularly sects like uh, the Quakers and uh, mm-hmm. the the Moravians. Which is actually my 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 grandparents were were Moravians, and but. Anyway, may, maybe for a football podcast, I'm digging too much down into history. But the, the, not to get too far away from college football, but yeah, Moravians are Anabaptist roots, right? You know, I should know the answer to that question because I should know exactly what an Anabaptist is as a history major, but I don't, unfortunately. Anabaptist is similar to the Amish in the sense that they were a, <laughs> and I'm going to get I'm going to get a lot of this wrong, but a Germanic sort of Luddite Christian group that spawned a bunch of other Christian groups sort of in a similar vein. But Anabaptists, if if you look up Anabaptists, the Anabaptist tradition, like there is a lot of there are a lot of sprung out sec, like it's a sectarian movement, but there are a lot of ones that sprung out from it that still exist today. That that strikes me as as plausible. I've always considered so my my grandfather was a Moravian. No, I'm sorry. My my grandfather was was born a Southern Baptist and then my grandmother was a Quaker and you know the Quaker I, I'm from the Piedmont region of the North of North Carolina and the the Quaker religion is was very proliferant there. And uh when they got married they they settled on Moravian uh as a healthy balance because Moravians would have a service and it was, you know, like a like a traditional church service, whereas Quakers, you know, they have a meeting and you sit there for three hours. And mm-hmm. if you feel so called or so moved uh, by by the spirit of the Lord, then then you stand up and, and, and you talk. And so but but Moravians were also they, they shared the, the pacifist culture of the Quakers. And, and yeah, the circle of friends. Of yeah, yeah, exactly. So you know what's crazy? Moravians are not Anabaptists. They're actually proto-Protestants. They cre- they they trace themselves back to 1457, which is actually before the Lutheran Reformation. We've really got to start talking about college football. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> but the Moravian tradition really interesting. They they're from Bohemia, interestingly enough. It sounds like I need to do more. Re- <laughs> I need to do more research about my own religious roots. Yeah. The Mennonites are Anabaptist, as are the Amish, which is why I ask, because there's a lot of very niche dramatic sects of Protestantism that still exist in small numbers in the United States. All right. We really, really have got to start talking about Yeah, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go. Okay. So UGA is going to win this game. I think that is pretty much fait accompli. I'm not really interested in talking about the what happens on the gridiron this weekend, in, in other than insofar as it relates to UGA. So I'm curious, before we get into the quantitative section of this, and we really start getting into the stats and just what CBCR2 has been doing and what, you know, just some advice from you, I'm curious if there's any like sort of qualitative open questions that you have after watching the Oregon game. Any any questions, even if they are influenced by stats that you feel like are, you know, things that UGA still has to answer, things that you still need to find out about this team? In terms of stats, though, I think there, there are questions in terms of personnel and scheme. As a fan, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm curious about, mm-hmm. like, I was expecting more Eric Gilbert. Sorry, Eric Gilbert. Right. I, I expected more of him in the Oregon game. I don't know exactly what happened there. 
And I was also expecting more to see more players like Garris Jackson and Dominic Blaylock, and I didn't see a whole lot of a lot of them. So there, there's that, and then on defense, I think personnel as well. It's who's going to play the the extra safety role. I was expecting more Dan Jackson, but we got Malachi Starks, and he was just a superstar. So mm-hmm. yeah, in terms of like the uh, like actual stats performance, I don't think that I have any like real questions that I'm, that I'm looking for, but I am looking at, at, at stats in the scheme. I'm looking to see if we continue with the perimeter approach or if that was just kind of a fake out for um, Dan Lanning. I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know, but I, I think what we're going to see at Sanford is a quarter, maybe a quarter and a half where we outscore them by 35 points. And then right. we don't see the starters. <laughs> like, like it's gonna, yeah, it's not gonna be close. I, w- I would agree. I think kind of big picture. I think your your perimeter comment and the Dan Lenning fake out thing is a good question. I think that Stetson probably throws a better deep ball than he gets credit for. I think yes. obviously the deep ball is probably what separates him from a guy like Bryce Young, other than just pure athleticism, or a guy like I mean the the, the NFL style deep, you know thirty yard bomb. Stetson often slightly underthrows that. But I, I do wonder. I do think he has the ability to throw deep a little bit more than we showed. So I, I mean, obviously, I don't expect to see that against Samford. But any even hint of that, even if it's just a route that we don't target, I will be interested to see because I, I did not really see yeah. us really sending anyone on Saturday, even in a pattern. You know? Yeah. And I there was one attempt that I remember where it must have been a cover two that he was facing, and he read it correctly. And uh, McConkie was running down the sideline, and he tried to uh, heave it to him. I think it was in the second half. It was it was easily in garbage time, but he, he overthrew him by a significant amount. But that's a throw I've seen him make. Like when you think about yeah. the deep balls that he hit against Auburn last year, uh, and even Alabama mm-hmm. and Michigan, uh, it is a, a yeah. throw that he can hit. But he missed that one. But it will be interesting to see if if, if they let loose a little bit on, on the deep ball against Sanford. And I do think that that's probably an area of the game where they probably want to, to work on throughout the season as they prep for Alabama and Ohio State, most likely. If I was Alabama or Ohio State, I would, A, I would just make Stetson win one-on-one outside throws. And I would get in yeah. his face. And so he, I think he has to, to some extent, he has to prove that he can do that. I'm making a lot of background right, noise right now because my cat just attacked my foot. Anyway, so let's get into the quantitative uh, piece of this puzzle, this episode, which is going to be far worse than normal, not because Ross is present, but because Justin is not. Justin, we miss you, BB. We love you. <laughs> we will talk to you soon. So let's get into our quantitative our, our quantitative preview, less of a preview and more of just a check-in, a, a vibe check, a heat check on where we are. And then we'll talk maybe about some things we'd like to see in the game, some of which we talked on, we touched on a touch. So, what what are where are we stats wise? Not just with UGA, but just writ large in this season. Like, can can you give us just a general R two sports metrics update as of yeah. you know September seventh? So this is actually a, a fun week with R two for for me because I'm still discovering it. Right, like so R two has a challenge. You know, it was it was built mid season last last year, so I was able to uh, opponent adjust the the raw 
statistical model results with uh, an SRS, uh, a simple rating system uh, that I developed on my own, which is a, essentially a, a, a algebraic way of opponent adjusting uh, points scored and points against. Uh, but you can't do that uh, with only one one week in the bag. That's it's just uh, mathematically impossible. So I was uh, today this this week in, involved some creativity, and what I decided to do is in in terms of how to factor in the results from this season um, so far was to use uh, points over expected. So, and by points over expected, the way I, I measured that was I used the implied points using the Vegas line and the Vegas over under uh, to estimate what the best expectation would be. And Vegas is always the best expectation of the number of points that a team is going to score. Um, and, and that's just simple, simple math. You just determine how many points that, that Vegas is, is projecting you to score. And then I took the amount that a team scored over or under that. And I used that along with the preseason rating to estimate the, the week two CBCR2 rating. And the result is very interesting. Georgia shot up to number one because we performed much better than expected than than others did uh, as measured by by the implied points from the Vegas over under and the Vegas spread. And that that data for, for the stats folks out there, that statistic points over expected or points allowed over expected did turn out to be statistically significant. The preseason rating dominates, and then the week one points over expected just nibbles around the edges. But it was enough to shoot Georgia back up over Alabama and Ohio State. And in fact, we now have the highest rated offense and the highest rated defense. Though worth noting that the offensive ratings now, we have Georgia as 45.3 points above the average team, and we have Alabama and Ohio State at 45.0 points ab- above the average team. So it's an effective tie uh, at, at number one uh, for the best offense. But we're a clear uh, leader on defense at, at 9.1 versus Alabama at 11.3. Uh, so so hmm. that's how our ratings and, and rankings sort of shake out, at least at the top. Would you expect there to be a high amount of volatility going into the next couple of weeks as we transition more into an in-season model and actually develop, like redevelop the SRS stuff? Or are you going to stick with the points over expected going forward? How, what, what would you predict the sort of the volatility at the top is going to be look like going forward? Yeah, I mean, this is brand new territory for me. I, given that the signal provided by points over expected using the Vegas line and over under was pretty strong, it seems to me that that, that's a uh, pretty good approach going forward. But it would obviously cease once I'm able to actually mathematically calculate a simple rating system, which Mm-hmm. algebraically adjust the number of points that you score mm-hmm. based on the quality of the opponent that or, or the opponents that your team has faced. And once we're able to do that, we'll transition over to that. And 
this season is, is we're we're breaking new ground and with with yeah. R two at at least in the early weeks. And then once we, we get to week eight, it's going to be identical to how we did things last last year. So uh, but until week eight, we're going to be tweaking and it's going to be a week to week thing. So I know that we have had, we had a good week one in the sort of metrics pick them challenge and uh, in, in our, we, that we've entered CBCR2 into, correct? Like we, that went well, has gone well so far? Right. So I did not enter uh, CBCR2 itself into the uh, college football data uh, computer pick them. But I did enter, so as people who are very familiar with the podcast know, we are testing another model called CBC SAM, and that's under development. And I'm still working on that. But I, I had I had entered two very rough versions of it into the the the, the Pick'em this weekend, and one of them did do very well. At least in terms of of, of uh, precision, it had ten point three five absolute error, and something like a one point or one hundred and eighty five mean square error. The mean square error was the best of any entry into the competition, of which I think there are over forty. And then the absolute error it was second, and if if you consider all of the the predictions that had been made over the course of the season. Uh, it's actually in first uh, over the course of the season in the CFPD or the college football data pickup. So uh, it did it did very well. It was designed to do very well in these precision metrics, and it's not intended necessarily to be as as good against the spread. And ultimately, what we're trying to do is be good against the spread and not necessarily be as precise as this. Nevertheless, that is an achievement. Uh, and the first time a- after entering that contest for at least eight weeks now, that was the first time that we won something. We, we finished first in a category that they, that they track. So uh, we are, we're, we're on a good path. Um, as, as frustrating as developing these systems has been. Um, and I, I wish they had, uh, are already uh, landed and launched, but that that was a positive sign that we're we're headed in a good direction. Well, that's amazing. Great updates all around. I wonder to sort of pause and kind of transition out of the stats for a second because I know you're gonna have to go before too long here. Is there anything just to sort of get your heat check on this weekend? Is there anything in particular that you would like to see? Any like just player occurrence question that you think we might answer that you you're looking for on the field other than obviously you know no major injuries yeah i guess that's that's uh the main thing i don't know i'm i've always been a softie for stetson i always i always have been and i think he has a talent around him to to make a heisman run and I would like to see us lean into that just a little bit. I don't want to see the coaches lean in so much, like or just not even more than a little bit, just a little bit. Like I don't want them to think to, to start sacrificing any sort of performance or uh, team development or player development for trying to win the Heisman. But like 
let Stetson run the run run up the run up his numbers a little bit against against Sanford. I mean, mm-hmm. Bryce threw five TDs and for all, uh, on only 195 yards against uh, against Utah State. And if he's his his uh, biggest competition, then yeah, let him throw a, a, a few TDs. Like I mean, that I guess. That that's a that's a, a a Homer kind of general college football fan take on it. I am looking forward to seeing more of some of the players that didn't see the field as much or didn't see the ball as much um, uh, against Oregon, like like Gilbert and like Blaylock and Jackson. But other than that, I'm not looking for anything in particular. I think we're just going to stop them. Let's just go ahead and get it over with. And, yeah, no mercy. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, you know, I want to give you plenty of time to get out of here. And before we do, I, I do, we do have one Ask CBC question that we're about to get into that I think you are uniquely suited to answer for us, uh, not just from a sort of opinion perspective, but just from what the numbers tell us so far. So this is obviously small sample size, but we got, we got a question on Twitter from uh, HBTFD1, or they ask rather. Based on a game one performance, who would win in a matchup e- against each other? 2021 UGA or 2022 UGA? Oh, oh man. I, I mean, I think you got to go with what's in the bag. I mean, are you going to bet against the champs? I don't think you, I don't think you bet against the champs there. If, if you're using CBCR2, you, you say the current dogs are favored by two. But... I don't know if it's if it's me. I'm I'm picking the champs. I'm yeah. picking the best defense in this era. Yeah, there was nobody who could block that defensive line last year, and I don't know that this year's offensive line is that somebody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a good point. I don't know. Yeah, I I didn't even think about uh, matchup specific information like that, but I don't know. Like if Georgia plays like that again against the major competitors if, if they continue to outperform their current expectation against against teams that I'm looking at the team the, the matchups we need to look at this year which we're, we're we will win with 80 percent probability or greater against mm-hmm. uh, Tennessee Florida Kentucky and Mississippi State those are the games uh, we'll see how we do against those and those are going to be the the the, the best uh, signal for how we're going to do against the big teams this year. Just to, just to pause, because I know two of those teams, Tennessee and Florida in particular, have had sort of a a week one bounce, we'll say, I think, perception-wise. Yeah. So we still have us over both of those teams, you said, 80% of the time? Ballparking it, just, just yeah, eyeballing it. That's what I got. Huh. Is that, do you, I, I'm just trying to think up about, you know, how that melds up with my perception of those two teams. And so I, I guess in Florida's case, you would say, well, Utah is a good team and not a great team. And Florida still only beat them by four. And they had a hostile atmosphere. And Utah was playing the first game. And then I guess in Tennessee's case, to sort of branch that up, you would say, well, Tennessee is going to score the hell out of the ball. But do we know anything about how much they can stop people? I think that's right. Roughly what the numbers would say. Yeah, I mean, I I don't disagree with those takes. I think that the way I would put it is that Florida slipped up only marginally 
after week one. So yeah, they went from 21 to 17. And honestly, the, the outcome was essentially pretty close to as as expected. Like the line on that game was Utah by like two and a half, right? And the outcome was Florida by, what did they end up winning by? One, two? Something, I think it was a four point win. Yeah, very close to how they were expected to perform. So like 29-26 was the final. Yeah, so the the line was only six points off. That's That's easily within, you know, I mean, the expected range, the one standard deviation of the expected outcome of that game. Mm-hmm. And so like CBCR2 didn't react very strongly on, on Florida, only moving them up by four. And in fact, we still have Utah over them. And if they met on a, on a neutral field, we would expect that Utah would win. In fact, we would project that to be a Utah win by four points. So, hmm. yeah, I mean, from the election stat space, Nate Silver always says that, like, a, a close win, I always consider a close win to be very close to a close loss. And I, hmm. I, have, the same, uh, I have the same attitude towards football outcomes. I don't think there's, like, a, a winning more, like mentality or anything like that. The reason a team won is because one team made the fingertip catch and the other team didn't or mm-hmm. something like along those lines. There's some right. randomness to to all of these outcomes. That was a, a, an even matchup that Florida ended up on top of, but like if if they played it again a hundred times, I would I would think right. that Utah wins fifty three of them or something like that. It's, it's interesting. This I think is a good real life example of the value of stats to just your average fan. To bastardize a quote from Brad Pitt and Moneyball, it's it's not it's hard not to be romantic about college football, and in particular, I think it's hard not to be romantic about a good quarterback performance (laughs) yeah you see anthony richardson just sort of bionic manning his way in the ends in the red zone eight or nine times and you know it starts to give you something and i i I think maybe florida was i think i probably underestimated florida but i think you're right in the sense that they probably are what the numbers thought they are which is a you know top 25 team that is better coached than they were last year and has some really good players but whether you know that is in no way making them a contender for the playoff or whatever yeah they're they're they definitely aren't in playoff contender reach at this point and i mm. i would not suspect that they would yeah same same thing with tennessee so yeah they're, they're not within reach of that tennessee a, a decent jump uh they went from 11th to seventh so i i mean and and like those jumps towards the top of the spectrum are more significant than when we're talking about uh, jumps within, you know, the the 25th ranked team or the 20th ranked team to the 50th ranked team. Like th- those teams are more tightly packed. Uh, the teams up top are, are more spread out. So that they're ranked above teams like, for instance, Texas A&M is significant. That said, uh, we've, we, we do have their offense rates very high. But their their defense is not well rated. They well, uh, that we've got them as the fifth ranked offense and the fifteenth ranked defense. So I don't want to I don't want to uh, talk too much shit about that. But they're, they're just not in the anywhere close to the range that Georgia is at the top at in both offense right. and defense. So there's a perception I think that the computers love Tennessee. Do you think that is there any specific 
influence that Tennessee's style is having on those on those numbers that the way Tennessee plays just banking the ball down the field at all times in, in a sense that they're kind of a paper tiger what I have read online is that they are the BCS computers really like them like pretty much every they're they are rated higher by pretty much every statistical model than what your sort of eye test would tell you do you think there's any particular reason for that I, I guess I'll do, kind of defend the, the statistical models here. I think I think it's because they're probably pretty good, and I would okay. expect that they're they're likely to have a good season. But they have a tough schedule. They have to play Kentucky at number fifteen. They have to play Florida at number seventeen. They have to play Georgia at number one, and like they could easily drop at least if they go one and one against Kentucky and Florida. That's two losses right there with with Georgia and whatever they split there. I don't know who their cross conference uh, competitor is. Well, they're 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 every year one is Alabama, and they play Alabama. Yeah, so there there's another loss, and so I mean they could be kind of like Nebraska was last year. That's an extreme case, but they could be like a an eight win very good team. And actually, right. there 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 have been cases where, like for instance, LSU and Florida have had some. In the last five years, they've had some uh, very good teams that only won eight games. Um, mm-hmm. And that's kind of why I also think that it's kind of unjust that, like, Texas A&M uh, takes this hit for, based on their season last year, which was – they had a really good team last year. They they beat Alabama. and right. But people are, like, are, are criticizing them for only being an eight-win team. But they had a tough schedule. That's a tough schedule. It's a really right. tough schedule that they had to – had to had to navigate and that gets into the whole but you know pythagorean win expectation like you know what are you winning as opposed to like what an average team would win against the schedule or whatever exactly exactly an average team would have done much worse against texas a&m schedule than last year that's not to say that they shouldn't have done better against like arkansas thank you so much for being on and we appreciate you if you have not already check out ross relage at dog quant on twitter and at r2sportsmetrics.com thanks for coming on bud absolutely this was a lot of fun uh, let's talk more about uh, about uh, religion and southern religion uh and the the roots of it <laughs> it's i would absolutely love to that's probably a very different podcast than this one but i would love to do that <laughs> okay let's do it and now we are back here ross has left us it's just me and you dear listener me Nathan, your ASMR dad, speaking softly into the mic, and you, someone with probably an unhealthy relationship with college football. But it's okay. We're going to work through it together. I'm going to pitch down my sultry baritone into something more resembling an actual toxically masculine American male, and we're going to get through the rest of this episode together. So I'm glad that you're here with me today. So when we left off, but mere seconds ago in your time, we're talking to Ross about some Ask CBC questions. And so now we're going to get into the, the Ask CBC segment writ large. These questions are from our Discord for the most part. And we are very excited to have all of our Discord patrons. And we would love to have you as well, just as a reminder, if you listen to the top of the show. So let's go through some questions real quick. We'll start with our $50 patron question from Ben and Abby. Their question this week, and you can also have one of these questions if you join our highest tier like these fine folks have. Their question this week, given the glut of remasters for games that are at most one generation old, what's an older game that really needs a remaster? So I 
personally think the the best answer to this is Medieval 2 Total War. I think it's one of the best games ever made. It is and has been my obsession for basically 15 years. I think it is a game that is helped by its simplicity. So I maybe wouldn't trust a remaster because I think that it has sort of similar to, I'm not saying it is as good as chess, but it has some chess-like qualities in the sense that like it's sort of a romantic creative vagueness is part of the appeal. The fact that it is not as much of a micromanager game as the, the rest of the games in the series. So I think that would be a really good one. I also think getting into some back catalog sports games would be really fun. We haven't seen, for instance, a NCAA 2014 remaster. I think that would be awesome. I think that is probably not going to happen because they're just going to bring back the NCAA game, but still, I also think some a remaster of some more obscure JRPGs that are not Final Fantasy related would be great. I'm a big fan of the Suikoden series. I would love Suikoden remasters. I'd also just love a new Suikoden game. I would also really like some remasters of I think I think we've gotten a whole generation of remasters from NES and PlayStation 1 games, but there's some PlayStation 2 games and some N64 games that I would love to see come back around. I I know that obviously the a lot of the N64 games are on the Switch on their sort of mobile gaming platform now on their virtual gaming platform rather. But I, I would love to see like a reissue of Shadows of the Empire, which is like a classic 64 game or Super Mario 64. And, you know, whenever you're talking about these generational IPs like Mario or Star Wars, that is unlikely to happen because it would make less money probably than just a new title or a, a full service game like Battlefront or I don't actually think Mario has a full service game. So God, God bless Mario. But still, I know why that is unlikely to happen because there's probably more money to be milked out of the population by doing a new game. But I would really love to see some of these old games of my childhood remastered because I think the games of the last generations of platforms childhood, people who grew up with an NES or an SNES have already had their remasters. And I don't really think people who grew up with a 64 have had their remasters. You know, actually, one of the games that I would love to see remastered the most would be Pod Racing, Star Wars Pod Racing. One of my favorite games. It was the game that came with the N64 when I bought it. And I would really love, you know, and there's been a surge in sort of Gen Z interest in the, both the N64 and in the prequel tri- trilogy in general. And so I, I think that would be a, a, a very well-selling, but also sort of fun, nostalgic thing for me personally. All right, next question. This is a mini Rage Against the Machine from our friend Yara. First question, is LSU entering their flop era or was yesterday just a capital W, capital A, capital F, weird ass fluke? I would say, Yara, that they are entering at least a flop season. I think that the offensive line is sort of a train wreck and that is one of the most sure canary in the coal mine signs that something has been going wrong in a program. It does sort of harken back to just before Jimbo Fisher left Florida State for Texas A&M. He clearly was disinterested in the job and had sort of let the offensive line room go to hell in a handbasket. And I think a similar thing has happened here, probably not because Ed Orgeron was disinterested, but just because he wasn't an excellent program manager. So I think it's going to take several or at least two or three years for Kelly to get it back where they want it, which is weird because that was not how this was sold when you took in Notre Dame's coach, right? Ostensibly, the reason that Brian Kelly left Notre Dame was that he thought that he could recruit a national championship level squad or easier in LSU than he could at 
Notre Dame because LSU has fewer restrictions on players and also has just a higher level of interest in the sport probably than the Notre Dame administration. Not not to, I don't want to make anybody at, mad, but I just think that's what he thought, whether or not that is true or not. So there is some irony to the fact that LSU is probably going to take a step back. And I also think some irony to the fact that it is probably going to take Marcus Freeman less time to get Notre Dame back to a flirting with the playoff kind of level than it is going to take Brian Kelly, which I think is interesting. Question two from Yara. How do I continue winning the pick'em? I solely pick off of vibes last week, but I fear vibes are not enough to consistently maintain a W. Here's the thing. They're not statistically enough to maintain Ws, but if you work with what you know you have, right, which is you know you're picking against me and Justin, who are idiots, then I think you can get a long way on vibes, right? You're going to have a hard time beating Ross, who I think is picking with actual numbers, but vibes will get you better places sometimes than wild ass guesses, which is what you're getting from the rest of us. So next question from Steven. I'm not sure if this is Steven Shadouin or Steven Joyner. Either way, if, knock on wood, Munkin decides to go be a head coach somewhere after this season, where might Kirby look to try and keep this type of dynamic offense rolling? I would say that the most likely move would be a Buster Faulkner promotion. I think Buster Faulkner is currently an off-field coach who technically cannot coach the offense, but I know that he's assisted with the quarterbacks a lot. He is a guy who has offensive coordinator experience. He has quarterback coach experience. And I think he crossed paths with Munkin, I want to say, at Southern Miss. So he has been influenced by that Munkin school of thought. Uh, if you want continuity, which oftentimes coaches like Kirby and you know his mentor do, I think Buster Faulkner would be the, the, the clear choice. Question two from Steven. Did Anthony Richardson do enough to prove that Florida might be UGA's toughest game going forward? I think he did. I think that one of the things that made Florida so easy to make fun of last year was that it was obviously not the talent, that it was the problem, right? It, Dan Mullen was an excellent play caller and a poor program manager. It is clear already, and I think based on looking at his resume, you would say that it has been clear from the moment they hired him, that Billy Napier comes from the you know Kirby, Nick Saban school for Wayward Boys school of program management. Program management and culture are what Billy Napier does explicitly. So I think just starting with that, Florida was always going to be the hardest game. I think that, yeah, I mean, when you have a guy who is a threat to score anytime when you're inside your 30, inside the opponent's 30 with either his arms or his leg, that inherently makes it a tough game. And I also think that just after seeing the performance of Kentucky and some of the injury issues they're having in their offense, you got to think that maybe that game's not going to be as bad as we thought it would be. I still think that maybe the sleeper hard game is going to be Mississippi State, who actually had a lot of success running last week. So something to keep an eye on going forward. John Luke Godogs. It's actually John Luke Godogs, but whatever. The interior line play seemed poor, pretty poor again this week. Any reason to be worried about that long term? I would say no. I actually think one of the things that I would be looking for this weekend is to see how much rotation is there on the line. There was a lot of movement on the line on Saturday, which I think was really funny considering that we were ostensibly playing a top 15 opponent. But I think that there is enough talent, there are enough lottery tickets in this offensive line room that they're going to find the combination that works. I think that it's pretty clear that they're trying to get a Marius Mims on the field. So I would not be surprised to see him slotted into one of those positions going forward. 
but no, I'm I'm not that worried. I think that there's just too much talent. I think unless Stacy Searles is truly as bad a coach as the sort of bulldog message words would lead you to believe sometimes that unless that is the case, I think we'll be fine. Which, you know, weirder things have happened. Jay Anderson 25 asks, the fever dream of a game last night got me wondering, is there a single P5 matchup more chaotic than LSU-FSU? I mean, in the history of the sport, I don't know. Just energy-wise, maybe not, man. Those are two pretty chaotic programs. I mean, I guess the only one I could see would be like LSU-Miami would probably be pretty crazy. But man, LSU-FSU was just... It was just two equally flawed teams whose flaws made the other side look better. And I cannot imagine a more chaotic matchup than that either. And just basically where those two fan bases are right now in general, it's hard to me to imagine a vibe matchup that is as bad as that or as crazy as that. All right. This is from yearly Pluto 87 asking, which was more disrespectful? Number one, the 80 Mitchell, as in as if in Pickens' final form, pancaking the same defender twice on McConkey's rushing TD, or Jalen Carter absolutely tossing a 6'6", 330-pion lineman like he was a game-worn jockstrap before hitting the halfback in the backfield. I think the first one, I, I will say that the second one, Jalen Carter move, was probably more impressive just because most people can never do that. But I think the first one was more disrespectful because A.D. Mitchell is not a guy who looks like George Pickens build-wise. He's plenty big, but he is not like a thick intimidator the way that Pickens is. But he just absolutely grounded that dude on that touchdown. So I, I would definitely say that, that that Pickens block and the gifts that have come up out of it going, you know, in the past few days really did a lot for my mental health and, and it, it was deeply disrespectful. All right, last question from Irk Russell. Over-unders for the year. First, K-Mac, Kenny McIntosh, 690 receiving yards. So I thought this one was crazy, but he had 22 receptions for 242 yards last year, and he had five receptions for 117 against Oregon. I don't know that Kenny McIntosh is going to be the center of the offense against the rest of the SEC the way he was against Oregon. I think that probably Munkin thought that he had a speed disadvantage with with McIntosh coming out of the outfield specifically when it comes to Oregon. That will certainly be the case against other teams that UGA plays, but I do know that the way that Southeastern Conference defenses are often modeled around Nick Saban's, they do tend to prize a lot of talent in the inside linebacker room. Hmm. 690 seems like a lot. I'm going to take under, but I do think it might be somewhere around 500. Second question, 69% pass completion percentage for Stetson Bennett. Setson, for the record, had 64.5 first completion percentage last year. A five-point jump in completion percentage is pretty high. So my my gut instinct is to say under, but I'm going to take over or push. Because oh, we'll just say over. I'll be brave because I do think that, and I and I heard this was on this was on the Split Zone Duo show. This is a comment that I think Richard Johnson made that I think is really pertinent to this question, which is that. Because of the way offensive installs work in football in general, but specifically in college football where you have a limited amount of practice time, it is often the case that when you have an in-season quarterback change that the playbook as designed and installed in the summer camp, you know, summer practice periods and in the fall camp does not fit the skills of the new quarterback. So there is a, I think, pretty high probability that Stetson Bennett was in a 
JT Daniels offense for most of last year. Now, obviously they, they tailored it to him, but you can only install so many plays and some percentage of those plays are going to be plays that really try to highlight what your quarterback is the best at. Right. And so since JT Daniels is more of a prototypical drop back throw, you know, bomb the ball downfield passer, it makes sense that there was more of that element in UJ's offense, at least as planned last year before JT gets injured. So that's all along with saying that I think actually he could, Stetson could get over 69% this year because I think that we will have an offense that is tailored for what he does well, right? He is a, he is a very, very good timing based passer, right? He throws over the wet middle on time. Well, he gets out of the pocket and throws downfield. Well, he is not great at deep one-on-one balls down the field. You know, he's not great at your rainbow balls always, you know, he's done it, but it's, I don't think that that's his wheelhouse. So if we have a defense that is more or an offense rather that is more focused on those sorts of quick, efficient, maybe like maxing out at 25 yard completions, as opposed to maxing out at 40 yard completions, I think it's very possible that Stetson can increase and kind of feast on those sorts of passes and increases completion uh, percentage correspondingly. So this has been Chapel Bell Curve. Thank you for sticking with me all the way to the end and bearing with what I'm going to just imagine before I edit it is going to be an audio disaster. If you like what you heard today, you can find us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chapel Bell Curve. If you'd like to yell at us on email, you can send it to chapelbellcurve at gmail.com. But much like any complaint box, that one doesn't get checked as regularly. If you really like what you heard here today and you'd like to support the show, we'd love if you'd give us a rating or a review on your podcastier of choice. If you really loved what you heard here today, we think it would be worth your while to join our Patreon community. You can go to that by going on your digital device to patreon.com forward slash chapel bell curve. For as little as $1 a week, you can get access to a really good community. And I think generally find some like-minded people. I think that this, uh, one of the things that I'm most proud about this podcast is that I think it has a very specific kind of UGA fan that likes it. And if you are that kind of UGA fan, we think that you would really enjoy being on our Discord community for as little as $1 a month. We will catch you in the Classic City, as I said before this weekend, to face off against the Bizarro Bulldogs. But until then, go dogs.